Meet the Aquanics is now sponsored by Audible.com. As part of this sponsorship, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day trial so you can check out the range of titles that they're offering. Currently, Audible has over 180,000 books to choose from for either your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. To help support this podcast, please go to www.audibletrial.com slash And now, on with our next episode. Well, good uh, afternoon, morning, or evening uh, to anyone who happens to be tuning in live and um, for people who happen to be catching this uh, offline uh, on the podcast later on. Uh, thanks for joining uh, for what is now our 18th episode of uh, Meet the Aquanics. I'm actually quite happy that this has uh, kept going as long as it is. Uh, as I mentioned last week after our conversation with uh, Andrea Morello from UNSW, uh, today we've been uh, honoured enough to be joined by uh, Andrew Cross and the Bishop uh, from IBM Research, uh, who are another of sort of the private sector uh, major players within uh, quantum computing and, and quantum technology in general. Uh, so, guys, thanks for uh, giving me an hour of your time. Yeah, pleasure. And thanks for inviting us. So, um, obviously, uh, the main reason that I wanted to talk to you guys and why I sort of reached out to you is uh, because of uh, your recent release of uh, the Quantum Experience. Um, obviously, disclosures in order. I have uh, done some uh, experiments with your platform and put out a paper. Uh, hopefully, that'll that'll be published reasonably soon. Um, but first of all, before we get into sort of what the quantum experience is and, and how you guys came up with the idea and um, you know, what, what you're trying to get out of it, um, maybe give us a bit of a rundown of sort of, sort of the technology you're developing and where it sits. Uh, you guys are in the superconducting uh, platform, so similar to, to Google, uh, D-Wave, Rigetti, uh, a few of other the, the major players. Um, so basically give us a bit of a rundown of sort of how IBM got into this and, and why you guys are, are tackling superconducting uh, quantum bits. Yeah, so IBM has uh, been in, uh, uh, you know, physics of information for a long time, since the 60s. Uh, and then as a kind of a natural development from that, we've been, you know, we were there at the beginning of uh, uh, the, the quantum information uh, ideas. And then in recent years, uh, we've been focusing on uh, Actually, building a quantum computer using uh, superconducting qubits. So, yeah, like several other players in the in the in the in the domain, we we use uh, uh, transmon qubits. Um, we are focused on fixed frequency uh, transmon qubits at the moment. So we, we don't have any tunability in our system, although we're not we're not married to that for for the for the long term. But that's the, that's our current approach, uh, and our and our general uh, sort of short term scaling uh, uh, approach is to is to uh, build around uh, surface code so that's kind of the, the sort of the the, the near-term uh, goals is to build small surface codes using fixed frequency transform qubits mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so I mean IBM's been in this space for quite a while now um, some of the, some of the pioneers of quantum computing uh, have been based out of IBM uh, obviously people like Charlie Bennett uh, John Smolin um, Sergey um, the effort seems quite large um, for those of us in the community, um, there's always sort of this question as to sort of that aspect of quantum computing that exists at IBM with, with the, the Bennetts and the Smolens and, and people like that. And then there's the experimental side with, with you guys and Jay and, and Andrew. Um, how much is there sort of, do the do two groups intimately work together or are they sort of, you know, two sides of the same coin? Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it was a it's a pretty close uh, team. We we all talk to each other. I mean, there's obviously a spectrum from the people at the one end, you know, working in in the clean room doing fabrication. They don't have so much to say to Sergey uh, about you know uh, coding theory and so on. But uh, but there's a whole spectrum, and there's 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 discussions up and down the up and down the the, the all across the, the board. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're all uh, we're all pretty much. Uh, co-located right now in the same place in the building we we um, talk to each other quite regularly um, I think that's one of the things that's uh, that unique about IBM is that we do have uh, we do have a theory group we have a uh, you know quite a large number of theorists working right now and also a very large experimental effort and um, and we are working together both thinking about applications of these small machines as well as uh, you know, looking um, further down the road and thinking about um, what we'll need for um, 
for the longer term. So, I mean, Andrew, you're on the more on the theory side, and Lev, you're you're more on the experimental side, right? Uh, I'm a I'm a theorist who's about as close to experiments as you can be, and still call yourself a theorist without actually having to hand in your theory card. So, <laughs> I'm happy going in the lab and you know doing a calculation that says maybe maybe one of your cables is six inches too long. You know that kind of that kind of theorist. So sort of a device theorist more so than uh, an information theorist. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I mean, I'm a theorist. I've been trying to, uh, you know, spend some time uh, with, <laughs> spend a lot of time actually talking with experimentalists and trying to understand their, um, their issues. But, you know, I don't go into the lab. I don't make measurements. Uh, that's a good thing. And uh, <laughs> it really is <laughs> for them. Uh, and uh, yeah, so, I mean, um, I think there's a lot of benefit by having a dialogue between these types of people, so that uh, so the theorists really have a better understanding of what the what the real issues are and what the major obstacles are to um, you know, building more coherent systems or larger systems, and then um, at the same time, I think there's benefit to uh, share some of the ideas about applications and about uh, error correction with experimentalists that they have an idea of what uh, you know what we'll need uh, in the coming years. So, I mean, how much can you guys sort of give me sort of the background of how sort of IBM came into the superconducting sphere? Was it, was it sort of just sort of by happenstance or was this a concerted effort saying, no, we think this system's going to be the best and therefore we're going to target this? So, I, I mean, I think uh, IBM's been working in this area for a long time, both with, uh, you know, uh, programs looking at um, classical computation with superconducting circuits. Um, and also quantum computation. I mean, uh, there there was uh, there's been work here for you know well more than ten years in this area. Itself. Um, so before again, before we really get sort of into this this idea of what the quantum experience is and what you guys have put up, I just want to sort of get a an idea of, of where your tech is as 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 much as you're allowed to tell me. Um, so the quantum experience itself is a, is a five qubit uh, chip that we'll talk about in a second. Um, but where are you guys are? Where are you now in the lab? I mean, are you able to tell me in, in terms of, of where your tech is or, or where it's going to head in the next you know six or seven months? Yeah. So in the short term, we're moving towards larger numbers of qubits. We have a seven qubit sample uh, cold right now. Um, there's, you know, obviously, obviously we're moving towards large numbers of qubits, you know, in the in the in the teens rather than in the, you know, in the tens. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, you know, to make a useful computer, you really need a lot more. So there's, you know, one one direction we're moving towards is more qubits. Um, but at the same time, you need to uh, you need to work on coherence. It's not enough to have a lot of qubits. Your qubits need to need to be good. So in parallel, we have a whole separate program of just trying to make our single and two qubit gates uh, as good as possible try and reach the error correction threshold uh, and then maintain that kind of coherence while while building out larger systems. So it's not good enough that you can do one and two qubit gates well in a three qubit system. You need to be able to do them just as well in a, in a 10 qubit or a 50 qubit system. And that's that's the real challenge. So where are your sort of error rates now um, in terms of, of sort of these fault tolerant thresholds? So we, we all know that sort of if you need error rates below about 1% for these systems to start working in the context of error correction. Um, so in, in terms of your state of the art, where are you now? Yeah, so I think uh, our best single qubit error rate is at like 99.9, almost 99, 98.5, something like that. Our two qubit mm -hmm. error rate is, what is it, 98 point something? Uh, but the recent results were um, very, very near, if not above uh, or below a percent. Okay, right. So close, to, close to one percent error rate for two qubits. Um, but these are in these are in small systems, um, so we, you know, we, we aren't, you know, we aren't able to do that same error rate in a seven qubit system. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, our, our, you know, our best possible readout error is in the around ninety nine as well. Sort of the percent level. Again, at the percent level. So all, all the pieces can be there. I mean, our, our initialization is is well below a percent. Um, uh, all the all the pieces are there in isolation. The, the the challenge is to you know put those all together. You know, do the engineering optimization to try and uh, get everything as good as possible in in, in, a, in a system. So it's really so certainly the system level. No, sorry, sorry. 
Yeah, so I mean, so, the uh, recurring challenge is, okay. the, the recurring challenge is that every time there's an improvement in coherence, you expose new sources of noise. And uh, then you have to diagnose that and try again to achieve coherence-limited gates. And it seems to me that the problem is different when you have a, a sample with a, you know, two or three qubits versus a, a larger sample. There are um, there are more interactions to um, you know to consider and to turn off. And so these are these are the things that we're studying. So I mean, the context. Say, for example, certainly within the U.S., your major competitor would at this stage be John Martinez's group at Google. Um, they started off with this uh, very simple linear array uh, of qubits, this, this nine qubit chip uh, that they've done some stuff with. Um, now, in the, in the context of the quantum experience, this is not a linear chip. This is a, a more complex geometry. Um, can you give me sort of a, a, why did you go down this route? Did it, was it just simply the flexibility of being able to do what you wanted to do? Or was there a, a more fundamental design reason why you didn't basically do the same thing that Google did. So we're specifically aiming towards building a, a surface code, and the, the geometry that's that's there on the on the quantum experience is intended to be a small uh, small section of a surface code. So it's demonstrating some of the some of the technology you would need to start scaling this out to build, uh, you know, the the, the uh, a, a, a square a square lattice of code qubits with uh, the right connectivity to do your syndrome measurements in between. And so, actually, um, we could have, uh, with the with the hardware that's actually in the quantum experience, we could have tuned up additional additional gates so that maybe would have even be useful for certain purposes. But because they don't really uh, talk uh, help help with the, the they, they don't fit in with this uh, this idea that we're moving towards a, a surface code. We never uh, bothered to tune those up, even though those would nominally be available. So it's really this is this is our uh, our baby steps in the direction of the, of, the, of the surface code. Okay, so getting on to the to the quantum experience now. Um, so why don't you basically give uh, people who are listening um, a rundown of what this is and, and how you guys decided that not only were you going to build a small scale quantum processor, but that you really were going to open this up uh, on the cloud for, for people to play around with. Yeah, so you want? Sure. Well, um... I guess maybe I'll, I'll speak to the uh, maybe so the, the why first. I mean, we think there's, uh, I mean, first of all, we, maybe in no particular order, we'd like to uh, demonstrate that we have high coherence devices that we can control and that we can um, offer these in a, in a platform that's stable over a long period of time. So this is something that, this isn't a, a one-off experiment, but it's something that you can do repeatedly and, uh, you know, and reliably, um, you know, we've, We've um, uh, accepted you know, hundreds of thousands of, of jobs on the quantum experience from uh, you know, in excess of 30,000 users. And uh, you know, the systems stayed up, it stayed uh, relatively coherent. And, uh, and, and, and to, to emphasize, that's, that's been in basically an unattended mode. Like we spend a lot of time on thinking about the next steps and answering questions and you know, uh, talking to people like you. Uh, but our actual day-to-day -day effort is not keeping the thing running. It basically sits there and calibrates itself, and once in a while it throws, it throws sends us a message. Uh, me for a moment. <laughs> so we'll let this one go through a bit of a break while whatever announcement is happening at IBM is allowed to happen. Um, it's not too surprising. We get the same thing here at Recon. Sorry about that. We have a Labor Day shutdown. No, no problem at all. We get the same thing at Regan all the time. So, I mean, another, another, um, I mean, a, a reason that I'm very excited about is that this creates an opportunity for, uh, for everyone, you know, students, um, uh, everyone, decision makers, um, researchers, experts, to um, to come in and to learn about our system and learn about quantum computing in general. Um, you know, we've seen. Uh, we've seen people um, consider using this in their classroom. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it was the focus of uh, an undergraduate um, summer program at Waterloo. And so we're very excited about how excited students get about the opportunity to use, uh, use you know, a real quantum computer with, um, you know, real connectivity and real noise. Um, 
and uh, you know to see the effects of that. Um, uh, you know, a third reason that's uh, that's also important to us is to begin to um, in, you know engage with a community of people and to um, have a dialogue through the community that's online um, about directions that they would like to see improvements. Um, uh, you know, um, to have a discussion about uh, about quantum computing. So, um, uh, yeah, and then I guess um, another point is that we'd like to um, allow experts access to the technology, so that right. um, both both for the purpose of um, you know independently validate what we're saying you can see the t1 and t2s of these devices you can uh, you can run gates you know the capabilities it's it's open and uh, uh, we also see value in allowing people to experience the the actual imperfections in the system <laughs> yeah so an another way of saying this is that nobody really cares about five qubits as a as a useful device to, to do quantum comp computation with you can simulate that easily um, but what's not so simple to simulate uh, is is all the imperfections. So you know there are there are, there are many spurious modes. There are many different kinds of crosstalks and and drifts. But uh, you know if we were to go ahead and use our best possible modeling of of how that that would behave in order to to try and do some kind of uh, really realistic simulation of the device, it's really actually easier just to provide access to the real device and then people can you know test their algorithms against uh, the real the real statistics and the real types of noises that are that affect these systems sure, sure. this is this is also not a this is not a device that's not been optimized for a particular experiment or a particular algorithm um, you know it's it's something that is as Lev said run in an unattended mode um, you know uh, yeah, I think yeah, if, if we were going to if we were going to try and publish a paper about some particular algorithm that we were doing here, and we we were we wanted to really get the nice the best possible numbers for a, for a publication, you know, somebody would sit down and spend a week tweaking things just for that, and mm -hmm. uh, you know it would be a little bit fragile, and you'd hardly have to do your calibrations and immediately run things and, and you know try and get it just right. And we've kind of put this stepped everything back, put this in a in a, in a mode where it calibrates itself robustly for kind of all purposes rather than doing any kind of trade-off in one direction or another. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's really um, kind of an, an honest test of, so you, of the device. Yeah, you really get typical behavior from, from the device. Yeah, so I mean, it really is a cloud-based platform. So, I mean, in the, in the context, so you, you said now that you've got um, thousands upon thousands of people. And I mean, obviously, when this thing was first launched and it took off, um, it got quite a lot of coverage and I'm sure that a lot of people came into it. Um, as far as I'm aware, in terms of the academic papers, it's still the four or has there been more papers that have come out recently using your platform? I'm, I'm aware of the initial four. So uh, the number I, I, I've seen um, uh, mentioned is six. I mean, it depends on uh, some of them uh, maybe you wouldn't call exactly an academic paper, but the, the publications that mention the, mention the quantum experience. So it's it's of that order, and we're aware of other other work that's uh, that's uh, not been publicized yet. So it, it is getting some traction. So in terms of the the vast amount of of users that you've obviously had, I mean, one of the interesting things that I that I'm looking at when it comes to sort of public engagement of this kind of stuff is retention. Um, how many people that you know you might get some people who sort of come on, have a bit of a fiddle, then go away. Do you keep track of you know the how many users are sort of dedicated that they're really sort of building, whether it's educational programs, research programs, or just spending a lot of time on this thing as sort of part of the community that you're trying to build around the QE? Yeah, definitely all those statistics are, are kept. Um, you know, I, I don't have any particular reason myself to, to look at them, so I, I couldn't tell you any of the numbers. Uh, but we, yeah, we, we certainly keep, keep close tabs on, you know, how many people are coming back, how many people are doing it just once, how many people make it all the way through the tutorial, uh, how many people have run at least one uh, experiment on the real on the real uh, hardware, all these kinds of statistics, we, we know those. I know we have recurring users, people continue to run experiments on the device, they currently are running. So I mean, it, it's it's definitely, you know, just from, from the rough shape, it's, you know, it's a, it's a long tail. You know, there's some people who come in and just see, oh, wow, this quantum computing thing is nowhere near as advanced as I thought it was. I thought I could, you know, 
do 3D modeling or, or financial analysis on it, they, they run away. And that's good, they learn something. You know, they, they heard the hype about quantum computing and they realized that there's still still a ways to go. Uh, and there are other people who've come in and have realized, wow, this is a way for me to validate my new you know, tomography algorithm or something, and have really sat, sat down and asked for more time, asked for more units to, to be able to really explore. So we have the whole spectrum. So in terms of the sort of the, the, the community engagement, you've, you've tried to sort of build some kind of, of social media or some kind of forum platform. Um, and you mentioned that, that this stuff has been taken up by places like Waterloo in order to, to help sort of in the education sphere. Um, when they did this, especially the Waterloo case, um, did they coordinate with you guys much or did they basically build this thing up and sort of say, this is what we've done and we've used your platform to do it? So in the case of Waterloo, uh, one of our uh, team, uh, Sarah Sheldon, who was previously uh, at Waterloo, uh, went up to, to make sure everything ran smoothly. Uh, we also just made sure that, you know, coordinated insofar as to make sure there was no maintenance going on on the machine at the time, you know, just mm -hmm. give, them, give them access during the, during the session. And then Sarah was there to answer any questions if they, they saw particular uh, behavior of the machine, she was able to say, oh yeah, you expect to see that, that's, you know, that's, that's measurement crosstalk that you're seeing, or that's uh, some other effect. Um, but it was, uh, it was, it was pretty minimal. I think, I think uh, it wasn't really strictly necessary that she went there. It was, it was, it was nice for her and it, you know, made sure everything went smoothly, but I think it could have been done without that. <laughs> so, I mean, moving on, uh, Certainly, the quantum experience has sort of opened up this idea of uh, allowing, you know, a cloud-based quantum platform as, as small as it is at this point. Um, obviously, it's one of the first, and it's certainly the largest um, that currently exists in order for people to play around. Um, but in terms of sort of the technology that's that's moving forward um, in the context of the U.S. Uh, and the U.S. certainly in, in superconducting systems. Uh, and ion traps, which are the two major leaders, are, are definitely world leaders. Um, in, where do you think you guys are going to be able to head? I mean, there were there are articles that appeared uh, in the last couple of days uh, in New Scientist and MIT Tech Review about this recent theory paper from uh, from the Google guys about quantum supremacy, uh, hitting at about forty nine qubits. Um, I imagine, since as you said, you're you're positioning yourselves for surface codes and large scale error correction that you're going to basically head in the same direction. Um, is this sort of, especially considering IBM's a private player and Google's a private player, and uh, is this really now turning into a bit of an arms race? So, I mean, we have plans for larger devices, um, you know, more than more than 10 qubits. Um, I, I guess I... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, there are, so there are plans for um, you know sub twenty qubit devices in the in the relatively near term, and uh, you know we're looking toward for um, larger systems. Um, uh, as Lev mentioned, we currently have a seven qubit uh, experiment that's cold, and we're working on that right now. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know we're uh, in terms of the quantum experience, for example. Um, one direction that's just as important is to um, add more capability to smaller devices. So mm -hmm. improve coherence, um, uh, improve gate fidelity. Those are those are not the same thing. Improve um, readout. Um, improve the um, uh, our capability to to do feedback. And so all of these things are things that you um, that you may see on the quantum experience, um, you know, in the near term. And then, yeah, we're just we're doing this in a in a step by step way, where uh, you know there are there are various challenges that you have to overcome uh, on the way towards a useful device. So one of the one of the near term um, challenges that we're going to have to overcome quite soon uh, is breaking the plane. So right now, with all the devices that we've uh, that we've demonstrated here, uh, you can uh, you can bring in enough connections from the sides that you never actually have to you actually you don't have to access the middle of the code. Um, but obviously, with with a decent sized surface code, you're going to be able to have to start coming in from above or below to access the qubits in the interior. And there's a whole set of challenges to do with that in terms of fabrication and, and the microwave mode hygiene and all sorts of problems there. And so we're really just trying to go step by step, uh, make sure we understand everything that's going on at each step, 
and make sure that we that we have something that's not a dead end. Um, you know, it's 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 nice to go for 50 qubits all at once, but if it's uh, if if you're limited in the coherence there, or you don't really understand that system properly because it's just beyond anything you can simulate, then it's not clear how how useful that is to you. Uh, so we're we're just kind of building out with a you know again an ultimate goal of building a useful surface code based computer, but uh, uh, just solving the challenges as, as we come along the way. Uh, another challenge that Andrew didn't mention is the is the cost per qubit. Um, the qubits themselves are relatively cheap; they're, they're lithographically defined. Uh, but mm -hmm. so you have a you know you have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of, of room temperature electronics, microwave generators, mixers, arbitrary pulse generators, and so on. And uh, you know, as as the as the number of qubits grows, as we hope they will pretty quickly, uh, you really can't afford to have fifty thousand dollars of equipment per per qubit. Uh, so we have to start working on, on optimizing the, the room temperature electronics stack as well. Um, so there's a whole there's a whole set of challenges that, that you need to address. No, that's actually an interesting question um, in terms of this sort of, um, I would sort of say, non-quantum aspect of, of quantum technology. Um, I, I know that there's certain aspects of the Martinez group that, that are focusing on this. I know people like Dave Riley and that in Sydney who are spending a large amount of their time looking about how to optimize, you know, signals coming in, signals coming out of the fridge, um, how I'm going to control all these things at large scale. Um, obviously, there's that part of it. And there's also the part that you see through the quantum experience, because there seems to be a lot of software engineering, classical software engineering on the back end. Um, obviously, designing the web interface, designing the forums, collecting the data, um, all this kind of stuff. So. I mean, in terms of how IBM uh, and, and you guys at Yorktown are, are distributing this around sort of the Institute, are you now basically pulling in people from other aspects or other areas of IBM who really have not had that much to do with quantum, but are obviously good engineers and good software engineers and, and can now play a part in this? Uh, yes, absolutely. So we're, um, you know, we're looking to um, the software engineering talent in the building. To, um, to help us with exactly the kinds of problems that you that you've mentioned, um, you know, we also have a, um, you know a large number of engineers who are helping us think about uh, think about these kinds of problems. You know, a, a talent that's in the building, and uh, so that's, that's yeah. I mean, to add to yeah. I mean, this is a you know this is a research building. We have you know machine shops and electronic shops and and uh, software engineers in the building that have been do, you know all through this program been uh, been helping out. But as as these Systems get more and more complex. That we, we we really need them. You know, it's it's beyond the kind of thing that a, that a scientist, a research staff member can spec out themselves. You really need actual engineering uh, analysis done of the of the, the right way to set these systems up. Uh, and then, yeah, as we bring in uh, web capabilities, we're actually you know, IBM is a global company. We're we're bringing in global talent for the for that part of it. I mean, do these guys who who are who are not trained in quantum and who are not you know part of uh, uh, this sort of core research, do they sort of just come in sporadically, they do a little bit and then they go back to their other jobs? Or have you really started getting people who have, you know, grown up being software engineers who now sort of work on this pretty much full time? I think there's a there's a spectrum. There are some some people who you know are not quantum people by training and have no specific, you know, skill that you would say that makes you a quantum person, but they you know they do electronics for the quantum team. And there are other people with more specialized skills that maybe we don't need them full time to do, you know, thermal analysis or whatever it might be, who will come in and, you know, answer a question, do a calculation, and, and I think there's everything in between. But uh, but it's it's certainly I, I don't have too much interface with uh, with that side of things, but it, it's clear that there's there's uh, there's a lot of people that that that, that get brought in for specific uh, issues where they where they have the the ability to help. So does that happen more so on? You know the, the experimental guys really coming into this saying look we, we need this kind of software control we need this kind of stuff to actually work our hardware or is this more sort of andrew getting into your stuff and, and stuff that i work on a little bit is this now okay we, we know that this quantum programming is going to be a thing um so we're going to try and develop this at the much more higher level even though our hardware is not ready for it yet uh, uh so i mean in terms of so i i mean Speaking for myself and for what um, what we're thinking about for the quantum experience, I think we're we're looking, um, you know, the software that we're going to provide or the interface we're going to provide is going to be more of a near term 
a near-term interface, you know, something from at the quantum circuit level down. And uh, you know, that's, that's the piece that we're going to focus on. It's closest to the hardware we have. And uh, you know, there's a huge amount of work to do there. But um, there, you know, we're, we're interested in um, thinking about the challenges at that level and higher, and also thinking about the, the, uh, the software we need to control that. But for, for example, right now, um, I think that um, given the coherence times we have, um, and you know, even coherence times you might anticipate in the future, um, most of the instruction sequence will, will, will fit in memory at the moment. So you could pre-compile everything. You could optimize everything, um, uh, you know, sort of as a as a unit, and then load this into the into the hardware and run it. And what you agree? Um, I, I, for the short term, anyway. Yeah, at least for the I mean for the for the for the near term, and so um, uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of sophisticated control that has to happen uh, at this lower level, but we can imagine at a quantum program level that we're optimizing circuits, we're acting on circuits. And uh, so there isn't sort of a, a you know real-time quantum controller at that level that's that's emitting instructions down to, uh, um, you know, from a from a, uh, a program, say something like like a quipper or scaffold, down, you know, down. We can just imagine a quantum circuit, and then decompose that, optimize it, work on that, and turn that into an instruction stream for the experiment. So I hope that that gives some idea of of where we are and what we're thinking of. But I mean, does this work? I mean, again, I, I sort of try and reach out now and again to classical engineers and classical computer scientists. I mean, how much is the sort of non-quantum community at IBM really sort of grasped onto this and sort of said, look, there, there are a lot of things I'm interested, I want to start working on this. Um, but basically I'm saying, how are you engaging the sort of non-quantum side of IBM? I think it's early at the moment. Um, you know, there's there's interest, and we obviously, you know, people are aware of what's going on. Uh, I think it's a little bit early to be bringing in like whole, for example, compiler teams and uh, you know, tool chain tool chain designing and this kind of thing. Um, it you know, th there will be a time, but I think right now it's a little bit fuzzy, even what what you would like that to look like. Uh, so, um, you know. It's 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 it, it's you know it, it's probably going to happen at some point fairly soon, but uh, not just yet, I think. Yeah, but I mean, we have engaged with with software engineers in the building, who are helping with uh, a lot of the code that I mentioned. So from uh, you know from this circuit level down, um, you know, the, the the type of software we need to control the experiment drivers, all, all this kind of work. There's a huge amount of work to do there, and mm -hmm. so we've we've started to engage people who are who are experts in that. So, I mean, does your engagement, I mean, do you keep things sort of within the company or do you guys, I mean, I know you're, you're part of the logic program, right? The IR for logic program? Yes. Is that just basically you guys on your own or are you collaborating, you know, rather intensely with people like Delft or the other, I suppose the other participants in the logic program are dealing with iron traps. So you're probably not really talking with them much. Uh, so we have we have subcontractors on that program. Um, so doing, uh, for example, providing some hardware. Um, but uh, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of it's in house. I mean, you know, we have we have a lot of skills in house. We we don't you know we we, we don't need to to, to go to external uh, sources for very much. Now that that said, though, I, I think um, looking forward through, again through the quantum experience, we're hoping to um, we're you know we'll we'll see how this goes, but we're hoping. That this can be the beginning of a, of a more open conversation about software and about mm -hmm. the, the um, you know exactly these kinds of problems that you mentioned you know both from at the high high level of this um, software stack down to the down to the hardware so you know the first first steps that we're taking in this way I think you'll you'll see um, relatively soon you know changes to the changes to the interface trying to agree or you know, have a discussion about the, the, the type of interface that needs to be provided to the hardware, things like this, mm -hmm. how we build on top of that, um, what sorts of changes we need to make below that. Um, so I think we're hoping that um, as we move forward, uh, this will open up a bit. So, I mean, that's an interesting question. Certainly, since the quantum experience is quite a, a, a an in, it's quite an intricate interface and it's quite a, a well-built system. Um, considering this is the first time something like this has really been hooked up to a quantum computer, any type of quantum computer, no matter how big, has there been anything interesting that sort of cropped up 
you know, obviously quantum information and quantum computing is sort of either really heavily physics-based or really heavily theory. It's not so much in systems engineering. Is there anything notable that, that you can point out that when you started building this, it was sort of, hey, we didn't even think of this? I think we all underestimated, uh, at least I underestimated, uh, just all the all the little tricky bits that you need to, to actually have everything work together to have something be really reliable so that it can take arbitrary input from a user who maybe is being naive and, and, and random or maybe even being malicious and and have it uh, and have it just work reliably on a on a system that's that's been you know tuned and, and hacked on by scientists who know exactly what they're doing and only only sort of push the, the parts of the system that, that, that are well tested and, and work. And so kind of handling all those corner cases and making everything robust took took a lot more effort than, than at least I expected. Um, I'm not sure if that really answers the I, question. Yeah, I mean, I guess for, for researchers, we, well, I, you know, I'm used to writing sort of, you, you write some one-off code. And only in a few cases have I written something that's really, um, you know, meant for uh, other people. And uh, this, uh, I mean, it's not so surprising to say that it's quite a lot more work to do that. But, but the, uh, you know, the, 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 you feel it when you, when you put that much energy into, into making something like this. And yeah, my, my brother works in the industry and it's, it's certainly much different than the kind of code we're used to writing. You know, the silly things like the, if the hardware, if there's a problem with, with communicating with the hardware that causes your experiment not to, not to run one time in a thousand, and that, and and then you just need to hit Control C and try it again. You know that's yeah. not good enough. If this thing is running unattended. So do you know? I mean, I don't know if you guys know off the top of your head how many, roughly speaking, how many actual runs of the hardware have, have been executed, not the simulator. Uh, yes. So I mean, of the total of the hundreds of thousands of executions, about ten percent are right. to the hardware. Uh, the remaining 90 are to the various simulators. And I think oh, a larger proportion is to, to the idealized simulator at the moment. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, I, I'm not sure how to interpret this, but my feeling is that, you know, a lot of people are going into the tutorials and, and looking through some of these examples and, uh, and uh, you know, trying things out. And then there is, you know, there is a cost to using the experiment. There's a, there's a mechanism, these, uh, these sort of credits that, um, prevent too much from being uh, put into the queue, and so sure, it could sure. simply be that. But you know, it takes some investment to to um, you know take something that you're interested in doing and um, you know, put it in put it into a form that can run on the hardware, um, run, wait for the results. It's it just takes a bit more work. So, but I think yeah. So ten percent of of hundreds of thousands. So do you guys take the data? You know, when when I run something on the QE. You know, it might be a certain experiments. It's obviously you're logging the circuit I'm running. You're logging the results that are coming from it. Um, are you guys using that kind of data at the moment? Um, not at the level of looking at what circuit you're running. Um, you know, we're looking that you are running circuits and that and that you're running how many shots you're running and that maybe you're a heavy user. Uh, but we're not looking at uh, not not. I mean, I think it's, it, it is all logged. We could see what circuits you were running and try and scoop you, but uh, we're not doing that. Maybe, I mean, I think maybe, maybe if you, um, if you, um, I mean, if, yeah, exactly. I think if you're a heavy user, then, um, you know, um, and you, you keep needing to request um, more time, you know, then, then we probably know who you are, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I assume the really heavy users have probably emailed you and asked specifically for heavy use, so you probably already know who they are anyway. Yeah, yeah, and they, they, you know, they often have some question about some, some, some behavior they see of the system. Is it, you know, do we have some insights about it? And usually we can help. So, so it's one of the interesting parts about. It. Obviously, I'm not an experimentalist, so I, I'm not used to this. But with a self-maintained system that that's been running over hundreds or thousands of executions over what is it now six months um have you been seeing any kind of behavior that you know like error rates drift or, or calibration you know obviously you're calibrating this thing quite often um but are you seeing degradation in the qubits are you seeing these things possibly breaking no, no i don't think so no i mean we're not, we, we didn't really expect to because we've we've certainly had 
experiments called for this length of time with people you know manually uh, calibrating them and working with them and we we've, we've kept statistics on you know how things behave over a long a long run and we've we certainly see drifts and occasional times when something seems to go wrong for a day or two um, for, for you know unexplained reasons uh, but uh, but nothing that you could sort of just but as like a monotonic decrease in quality or anything like this, it's it's it's, it's you know a little bit of wandering around and occasional times where maybe the, a calibration gets itself into a bad corner and it uh, and it you know does it does a bad job of you know does a bad fit to to a to a curve and, and comes up with a terrible calibration that needs to be uh, either you need to wait for the next calibration or if we notice it we'll we'll, we'll kick off a manual recal. Um, but no, it's it's been. Uh, you know, after the first few days, where you know we hit all the all the uh, all the low probability things that only that only happen one time in in ten, but when you run ten calibrations, you see them. Uh, mm -hmm. We've actually made it more robust, and after the after the first few days, it's it's been pretty much unattended and and not not really given any surprises. It's your typical okay. drift. That, that's quite optimistic. Um, then again, I'm not an experimentalist. I'm not sure how these systems are usually behaving over hundreds or thousands of hours of operation. So I mean, typically, right? T one, T two drifts. The gate cal. The the bad cases are, I suppose, when the calibration fails for some reason, and you end up with a gate that's far inferior to what you expected. But uh, you know, otherwise, it's typical fluctuations in coherence. And you can observe this, um, you know, over time yourself if you were to go online and watch, uh, watch how the coherence changes uh, as you know as the device is recalibrated. So, I mean, in terms of the future for the QE, I mean, you were talking before about sort of upgrades. Um, obviously, I imagine IBM is more interested in getting your core technology working. So whether it's the seven qubit device or, or a larger device in the future with, with better coherence. Um, at what point do you, I mean, is the, the QE, is this a secondary thing? Sort of like we build a chip, the chip's really good, we can test it, we can do whatever we want with it. Now we're on to the next generation chip, so that one now goes into the quantum experience. Um, I don't think we're really thinking that way. I think if we if we have a, a good chip that we've uh, that we've used for another purpose and it's been well tested and we, we know everything about it and it has no surprises, then that would be a good candidate to go in the, in the QE if it, uh, if it has you know, more capabilities than the one that's already there. I don't think it's really that it's a secondary system. It's just that we're probably unlikely to put in uh, an experimental chip that's never been used before uh, into the sure. QE. We want to do some validation first. And if we're going to do some validation and it turns out to be a good one, it's probably going to have actually been used for science uh, before it goes in, just because each each cool down is, takes some time and is expensive and you're not going to waste that. So. But I, I don't think it's really a secondary priority. It's it, you know we're kind of committed to putting our, our, our best technology in the QE, with consistent with it being you know able to run by itself and be a general purpose device rather than something that's really designed to demonstrate one specific thing. I mean, I imagine that that in, in terms of the, the the infrastructure, the dilution refrigerator, stuff like that, it. You probably wouldn't run multiple dill fridges where you know one's got the five qubit chip and one's got the seven qubit chip. It would be a sort of a replacement thing, just to basically save on resources. Uh, I, I think both are a possibility. So we, no. we have more than one dilution refrigerator in, in the building, and it's certainly possible sure. to run more than one experiment in in, in a fridge. Uh, so uh, one possible uh, way to extend the quantum experience is to is to uh, add you know, as well as a five qubit sample running, also maybe a three qubit sample with uh, with uh, with better coherence or with different capabilities, like maybe you know, feedback or something like this. Uh, so these are these are the kinds of directions we might go. Uh, nothing is nothing is set in stone at the moment, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, there'll 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 always be something running, and uh, and it doesn't have to be limited by by fridge resources. Sure, sure. So in terms of your users, I mean, what's what's been the most requested thing? I mean, so the, the quantum experience that you guys released was kind of ideal for me because it, it put everything in the language that I'm used to and everything in the language that I worked with, um, with other people, not so much. So in terms of uh, people playing around with it or, or more specifically the research community, what's sort of been the number one thing that people have come back at you and said, look, guys, can you do this? I say this probably gone. Okay. I mean, so we've had... 
I guess we've had requests, well, okay, for our own interest, we're looking at um, allowing arbitrary single qubit rotations, uh, not mm -hmm. just a discrete set, and that should allow you to write more compact circuits. Um, we've heard requests for adding um, classical registers, you know, the ability to make repeated measurements or apply feedback from those measurements. Um, right. I think those are the main, were there a few other requests? I think um, a more programmatic in interface so that you don't uh, have yeah. to do so much by dragging, uh, dragging boxes around on a, on a GUI. <clears throat> which we've which we've implemented to a certain extent. I don't know if you've seen recently. We have a, a beta feature where you can uh, you can actually write in uh, uh, te textual programs, uh, and they can they, they can. Well, I saw that I saw that paper from this woman who appears to be a climate scientist down in the South Pole who did this. Yeah. Um, that was certainly an interesting thing to pop up. Yeah, so I think uh, that was based on that in the South Pole, you don't get much internet connectivity. And so she wanted something that she was able to run offline locally and test her test her programs. And then when she had her precious internet connectivity to actually use the, the, the system as efficiently as possible. And so she, she basically uh, reverse engineered our, uh, our, uh, our language for doing, uh, doing quantum computing, our quantum assembler quasm. Um, so she uh, she basically wrote an independent implementation of a simulator for that. I mean, did she talk to you to you guys much? I mean, what was her motivation? It seemed way out of left field, from what I can tell, as a sort of day job. Uh, I, as far as I know, the, the the most wonderful motivation, curiosity. I think that's. Right. I think that's. Yeah. I think yeah, I think she was limited. You know, she's she's obviously a, got a lot of skills. She was stuck in the South Pole with nothing much to do with the South Pole, I guess. Uh, so, uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, she saw this tool and realized that actually she could, uh, she could play with it uh, even more if she had better bandwidth to it. So she wrote her own, her own implementation of the simulator. Yeah, I thought it was great. Oh, um, but um, I mean, another, this is related to what Lev said, another feature request is it would get some, it's, you know, it's it's a lot of work to write down a, a circuit and decompose it into all of its basic gates, and then and then put it into the quantum experience. So we're trying to allow, uh, you know, we plan to allow a more modular description of the circuit. Um, you know, these are these are kind of obvious things, but you know, batching gates together, defining new collections of gates. Um, mm -hmm. So it allow you to, so for example, if you wanted to to implement a, a small adder or a small um, small uh, bit flip code. Uh, and you need a Toffley gate, this will be convenient. Um, it'll also let you very quickly uh, run into the coherence limit on the uh, yeah. supply. Yeah. So you, you mentioned earlier on, Liv, um, that, that IBM's focus is, is obviously on the surface code and scaling up in the context of, of that error-corrected model. Um, with most of the major labs and most of the major groups, um, they sort of, you know, have the, the main focus, which is obviously a scalable digital error corrected quantum computer. Um, but then they sort of have the side projects. So I know both, obviously, Google and um, Sydney and a few others, um, even here in Japan, are looking at this quantum annealing route or things like boson sampling or um, sort of other side technologies that, for various reasons, whether you agree with them or not, um, may be faster to achieve. Um, is, are you guys doing similar things at IBM or is it really, you know, narrow focus, we, we want to hit this large scale digital error corrected machine? Uh, so we certainly are focused on things that will allow us to, to progress towards a large scale error corrected machine. But along the way, uh, we're hoping that we'll be able to do something useful before we build uh, such a such a machine because that's really uh, still a, a ways off, and so our our, our big sort of short term uh, goal is is quantum chemistry. So we're looking towards uh, different ways of using small uh, quantum computers without full error correction uh, to do uh, 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 calculations in quantum chemistry. So I ask um, most people who come on this podcast is to to give me sort of a prediction of, of where you think the field in general, and specifically your own hardware, um, will be in the next five or 10 years. Um, you guys want to give it a shot as to where you think you can, can get to um, by 2020 or 2025? Um, so being optimistic, I think we would, 
uh, on the uh, on the surface code path towards uh, towards that that direction. I would hope that in five years we would have uh, two logical qubits that we could do interesting things with. So, two logical qubits in five years. Yeah, I, I think that's a, I think that's an optimistic but 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 practice, you know, potentially doable goal. Um, so. Uh, I think I think at that point you're gonna you're gonna learn a lot about uh, you know along along that path you're gonna learn a lot about uh, the ch challenges of uh, doing logical qubits and it's gonna it's not gonna be easy and I think uh, I can't see beyond that because I think there's there's so many unknowns uh, up to that point but I think at least at least to there I think that's 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 something we should be aiming for and then I hope also we'll have uh, we'll have something that uh, can can uh, do small quantum chemistry pro problems. Although I'm, I'm not I'm not confident in five years whether we can do anything that couldn't already be done with a supercomputer and lots of sophisticated couple cluster or whatever algorithms. But uh, you never know. I don't know if you have an opinion. No, I just I think the most important challenge, and I think everyone in the community is well aware of it, is to think what to do with a small machine. Um, yep, particularly right. one where you have you don't have error correction, and uh, you need to have new techniques for mitigating that noise in some way, to um, you know to compute the the observable that you'd like to see, and uh, you know I think that we'll we'll probably see machines that are approaching that that uh, that size where we can um, start to uh, make um, you know start to observe things that we can't predict through simulation, and I think that that would be very interesting. Okay, so we're running up to, to 50 minutes, which is usually the, the maximum that I like to run these things before people uh, basically start glazing over. Um, so just to, to finalize things, um, is there anything uh, you guys want to plug, anything interesting um, in terms of programs running at IBM, opportunities, or, or just stuff you think is pretty cool that's, that's going to come out in the next week or month or so? I think we well we definitely want to point people to the quantum experience. Right? So if they go to um, uh, ibm.com/quantumcomputing, uh, they can you know try what we've been discussing. So yeah, and like just that. make sure everyone realize everyone listening realizes it's, it's it's there's something for everybody in there. You know, there's there's tutorials for people who don't know any any quantum computing. Uh, there's the ability to run on a real quantum computer and test your ideas if you're an expert. And uh, and there's a community where you can uh, discuss uh, you know next steps and, and problems and challenges. So I, I think uh, we'd really like uh, as many people as possible to to check it out. Yeah, and I I certainly can can encourage people to to, to do it as well. I thought it was a, a great bit of fun when I was playing around with it a few months ago. Um, obviously there'll be links in the low bar both on YouTube and all of our accounts pointing people in that direction. Uh, so finally. Um, both of you, uh, thanks again for sitting down with me for an hour and giving a bit of a rundown of, of what's going on now at IBM. So both Andrew and Lev, thanks again. Thanks very much. Thank you. Great. So everyone, thank you again for joining in. For those of you who watch live or, or download later, as again, I always say, uh, please subscribe to us on our various accounts. Um, the number of downloads and listens that we're getting to now is actually quite large and I'm very, very appreciative of uh, everyone who's uh, managed to make this podcast a little bit more of a success than I thought. Um, our next episode, we haven't locked in uh, a guest yet. There are a few people that I'm still nailing down times for. Um, but of course, check out our Twitter feed and our YouTube account. Uh, as soon as we have our next one scheduled, uh, I'll let you all know. So thanks a lot again. Cheers. Bye.